If you have a copy of Scripture with you, turn to Matthew chapter 8. We continue our sermon series through the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 8. As we've preached through the Gospel of Matthew, we've noted that the Gospel is arranged around five major teaching sections. So the first section uh, that we just worked through was the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7. And in between these major teaching sections, we have the stories of Jesus interacting with various people. When we saw the, the first four chapters of Matthew, we said that what Matthew was doing was he was establishing the credentials of the king. So the Gospel of Matthew begins by saying, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Matthew sets out to explain Jesus as this hoped-for Messiah, the one that the whole Old Testament was pointing to, the fulfillment of our hopes, this Davidic king. And he establishes the credentials of this king through a genealogy, through a story of the miraculous birth, through things like the victorious uh, victory over temptation, and his baptism. Having established the credentials of this king, Matthew recounts for us the teaching of this king in the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus goes up onto a mountain and, and teaches his people about the kingdom of God. What we've said is God's people in God's place under God's rule. And we've seen that this kingdom has a totally different set of values than the world around us. Those who are a part of this kingdom, how Jesus begins his sermon, are this. They are, blessed are those. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Those who recognize their desperate need of this king. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom is for those who recognize their desperate need of a Savior and through faith are transformed from the inside out so that they embody the values of the kingdom. Then our section today is chapter 8, which is between the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' next teaching on missions and discipleship. We've seen that this kingdom has a radically different set of values. So that when Jesus comes down from teaching on the mount, they were amazed. Because he taught them with authority, not like one of their scribes. But a question we could have is, does this kingdom really have power? It's some great teaching. But does this authority extend over everything? Like Jesus will claim at the end of this gospel, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Well, what will happen in chapters 8 and 9 will be a demonstration of the authority of Jesus. We'll see what this kingdom rule begins to look like as Jesus exercises his authoritative rule over sickness, over demons, and over nature. We'll encounter a number of people this morning. And what we're supposed to see in these people is how do they respond to Jesus? Do they come to Him recognizing their need of Him and following Him in faith? 
or do they reject him? The main idea of chapter 8 is this. Because Jesus is Lord, follow him in faith. Because Jesus is Lord, follow him in faith. Now I've told you that Matthew chapter 8 has a number of stories. So our approach this morning will just to be uh, preached through these stories as we encounter them in the gospel of Matthew. Matthew 8, starting in verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying... Now, that in itself is a startling thing. A leper in the ancient world was someone who was afflicted by various skin diseases. And some of these were really painful. Some of them could even lead to an early death. But just as bad as that physical pain was, these were people who were socially ostracized. They had no part with other people. They had to keep their distance and even shout unclean as they came near to people. This leper, in his desperation, breaks all social conventions, and he comes up and kneels before Jesus and says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, the people around the crowds are are probably a little aghast at this point. Like, what is this guy doing coming so close to Jesus? But what happens next would have astounded everyone. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. And you can feel the astonishment that these people would have had. Don't touch him, Jesus. You'll be unclean. Don't touch him, Jesus. You might be contaminated and become a leper yourself. But Jesus demonstrates his compassion. Jesus doesn't have to touch him, but he touches him to show him that he has compassion and that he loves him. And a person who probably hasn't felt human touch for years feels the touch of Jesus. And Jesus says this, I will be clean. The words of Jesus have power and authority. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. He restored this man to wholeness. And Jesus said, see that you say nothing to anyone. Jesus wasn't looking to start a movement of miracle watchers. But go and show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded for proof to them. So as Jesus heals this man, Jesus heals him completely. And he wants to send him to the priests so that His healing can be verified so that he can return to normal social interactions. What we see here is the compassion of Jesus, the completeness of his authority. This man was a social outcast. But Jesus is demonstrating this. The only people who are outcasts from God's kingdom are those who refuse to believe in the Son. The kingdom is for all of those who recognize their desperate need of Jesus and come to Him in faith. I recognize in a a group of this size, there are probably some people that came here this morning thinking that I don't belong. They probably feel like an outcast even at church. 
thinking that if people knew my past, much less my present, there's no part that I would have in this community. You need to hear this. There are no outcasts in God's kingdom except those who reject the king. There are no outcasts in the kingdom of God other than those who reject the Son. Those who are a part of God's kingdom are those who are poor in spirit and come to Him in faith. Well, as the story progresses, we transition from someone who is a social outcast to someone who was at the pinnacle of society. In verse 5, when he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Now, this centurion was a, was a hardened military leader. He was sent there by Rome to enact Rome's kingdom rule. He was sent there by Rome to suppress and oppress the Jewish people. And the irony that we have is this centurion, the emblem of Roman rule, comes to this Jewish rabbi admitting that Rome has no authority that can conquer this sickness. And he says to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Now he actually doesn't even make an appeal to Jesus, and Jesus says this to him. He says, I will come and heal him, which again would be crazy for a Jew to go into the house of this Gentile. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say a word and my servant will be healed. This centurion recognizes the worth of Jesus in his own unworthiness. He understands Jesus' authority. Jesus doesn't have to be present to heal. He can heal from a distance. He understands authority because he has some measure of authority himself. For I'm a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled. He remarked at his faith and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. He commends the faith of this centurion man who comes to Jesus recognizing who he is and his desperate need of him. And Jesus goes on in verse 11 to say, I tell you, many will come from east and the west and recline at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is pointing us forward to the Gentiles coming in and believing in this Jewish Messiah. Verse 12, while the sons of the kingdom, and this represents the Jews who did not believe. The sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again we see this theme. That those who are a part of the kingdom of God are not those who are ethnically associated with God's people, but those who are a part of the kingdom of God are those who come poor in spirit, crying out to this king, Lord, help me. Jesus, uh, to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And we see again the emphasis on the power of Jesus. The servant was healed 
at that very moment. The servant was healed at that very moment. See a centurion, a Gentile, that most people in that day would have said had no part in the kingdom. He comes humbly in faith. And Jesus remarks about his faith. Most of us probably didn't come here today wondering if we would be excluded from the people of God because of our ethnicity. Most of us probably didn't come taking much confidence in our ethnicity either. But some of us might have come to church this morning taking great confidence in our association with the people of God. If I asked you this morning, are you a Christian? Some of you might say, well, yeah, I've been to church all my life. Some of you might say, yeah, I've I've been associated with God's people. I've even given financially to His causes. I've served in Sunday school. That's not what the kingdom of God is. What the kingdom of God is this, those who come poor in spirit, in desperate faith. It's those who come deciding to depend on Jesus with their whole life. You must respond personally to the call of this king. Blessed are those who come to him poor in spirit. The scene shifts from interacting with this military leader, being willing to go into a Gentile's house, to going into the house and finding this Jewish woman. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying there sick with a fever. Now in the Gospel of Luke, they tell us that they asked Jesus to heal this woman. Matthew just focuses on his compassion and just says he touched her. He touched her and the fever left her. And she arose and began to serve him just like he touched the leper and he was well He touches this woman, and she as well. And then after that, we have a great series of miracles that we only have one verse referencing it. It says, That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. With a word, Jesus, as God has the authority to heal sicknesses, and to cast out demons. Matthew interprets this. He interprets this as the fulfillment of a prophecy by the prophet Isaiah. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now that's the the prophecy that we read together earlier in the service. And I want to reread this because what Matthew is doing is Matthew is saying Jesus' healing ministry is the beginning of the fulfillment of this whole prophecy. Now when we read Isaiah 53, our minds go to the cross where he bore our sorrows, he bore our afflictions. And that's appropriate. It's also appropriate that we see these miracles as prefiguring the ultimate healing. Isaiah 53 says this, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Matthew understands that this ministry of Jesus, his healing ministry, is bigger than most people might have recognized. The diseases from which they are healed are manifestations of that deeper problem of sin began back in Genesis 3. So if we think back in Genesis 3, when humanity rebels against God, they're plunged into sin, and as a result, there is sickness, there is death, there is dying, there is disease. And Jesus comes along and starts to heal those effects of the curse because ultimately he's going to conquer the curse itself. He's going to take our sins upon him. He's going to die in our place on that cross and he will rise up in victory. We're beginning to see with more clarity this ministry of Jesus. We're beginning to see what it's all about. He's demonstrating his power to heal physically, to restore wholeness, because ultimately he's going to heal the whole person. His cross work and resurrection will heal us and make us whole completely. In the midst of these string of miracle stories, Matthew records an interaction that Jesus has with a few would-be disciples. If you recall last week, Jeremy reminded us of the dangers of false discipleship. And as Jesus starts to perform these miracles, there come to him people who say that we're your disciples, we want to follow you. But We see that their desire to follow Jesus isn't motivated rightly. Verse 18, When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Now, when we encounter a scribe in the Gospel of Matthew, we're predisposed to doubt the genuineness of this individual. We've seen the scribes already opposing Jesus. So when this scribe comes up, we're wondering, what's he going to say? He says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. We read that, we're like, that's exactly what someone ought to say to Jesus. They'll say, I'll follow you wherever you go. But Jesus gets to the heart. Jesus says to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus knows what's motivating this scribe. And Jesus says, if you're following me, if you want to be a part of this kingdom, for the prominence that you're going to have, for the life of ease that you're going to have, you need to know that the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. 
the scribes seemed to be motivated wrongly. He seemed to think of the kingdom of God as something that would usher in a rule that would bring him perhaps power and, and maybe authority and maybe a life of ease. When this scribe hears this high cost of discipleship, it seems that he turns away because he disappears from the narrative. Verse 21, we encounter another person, another would-be disciple, who says to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, what does that request mean? It could be that the man is just saying, like, look, I want to fulfill my family obligations. Or it's more likely this guy is saying, look, let me go receive my inheritance. When, when my father dies, I get the inheritance, my future is secure, then I'll be willing to follow you. Jesus, again, gets to the heart and says simply and straightforwardly, follow me. Follow me. And leave the dead to bury their own dead. Jesus' demand here is straightforward. Follow me and follow me immediately. He's stating the need for absolute, immediate, and costly commitment. Sometimes I say to my kids, delayed obedience is disobedience. Some of you are shaking your head like, I've heard that. Um, but delayed obedience is disobedience. Because when I tell my kids to do something and they delay, it means they have misunderstood the authority that I have over them as their father. How much more when Jesus, King of everything, makes a demand of us that we should follow immediately. This hard call of discipleship is repeated a number of times by Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. In chapter 10, he says this, Whoever loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Those are shocking words. Whoever doesn't take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Or in chapter 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The kingdom of heaven is like one who sees the absolute worth of the king, and abandons everything to follow him. Chapter 16, Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul. Jesus' call on our life is complete and absolute. Follow me. Follow me with all that you are. Now we can't lose sight that this call to discipleship is in response to the wonderful grace of God. Like we just sang, Jesus paid it all, therefore... All to Him I owe. 
one pastor noted the tension that some people were, were feeling about the, the grace of God, the free grace of God, then requiring all that we have. And he tells a story about a woman who was coming to his church each week and she would hear this gospel preached. She would hear the good news about what God has done in Jesus to offer salvation to all who have faith in Him. And she, she just would come each week, but she wasn't responding to this gospel. And so finally the pastor went and talked with her and he said to her, well, it seems like you keep coming, but you don't believe yet. And she said, well, if I'm going to be honest, it's because this gospel of grace is terrifying. I said, well, that's not the, the response that I expected you to say. But she said she'd grown up in church and she'd always heard that if she was just good enough, that God would accept her and she would be right with God. But this new message about grace was scary because if she was good enough and it depended on what she had did done, then there were limits to what God could require of her. But if this message is about the grace of God and what He has done, then there's no limits to what God could require of her. If you're a sinner saved by grace, there's nothing that God cannot rightly ask of you. That's what it means to be saved by grace and to follow Jesus in costly discipleship. The scene shifts again and Jesus gets into a boat in verse 23 and His disciples followed Him. That's what a disciple should do. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so the boat was being swamped by the waves, but He was asleep. If you've ever been in a storm, like a, a really powerful storm, it's terrifying because it's completely beyond your power. You recognize there's nothing that I can do to change this circumstance. We've got a little picture here of Jesus, Son of God, who's just been healing disease and casting out demons with a word. It's a very human Jesus, asleep during a storm. And when they woke Him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing, they cry out in desperation. He said to Him, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Hasn't Jesus consistently demonstrated that He's in control, that He's enacting the Father's will? Why are you doubting? Then he arose, and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Now, if you're still wondering, do the words of Jesus have power and authority? Here, by speaking the word, he rebukes the sea, and the storm is calmed. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? And part of us is thinking, don't you get it yet? Don't you get it? that this is God in the flesh, that He's come to demonstrate His authority over sickness, disease, and even nature itself. And then our scene shifts again in verse 28. 
when he came to the other side to the country of Gadarenes. Now, this is probably an area that's inhabited by Gentiles because they have pigs and Jews wouldn't have had pigs. And two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass by. We began Matthew 8 with these, this social outcast who was unclean because he had a, a disease. And we conclude chapter 8 with these two demon-possessed men. They're unclean, not just because they were possessed by a demon, but they lived in tombs. They were virtually dead apart from Christ. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, the disciples ended by not recognizing that Jesus was the Son of God, and then we have two demons that recognize rightly that He is the Son of God, and they recognize His authority. Ultimately, He will judge these demons, and they, they recognize that about Him. Now, a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged Him, saying, If you cast us out, Send us away into the herd of pigs. They realize that they are at the complete mercy of Jesus. He said to them, Go. With a mere word, they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. These demons were always opposed to God. They were always bent on death and destruction. And Jesus frees these two men from their oppression. And they demonstrate their opposition to the life that God provides by killing a herd of pigs. The story doesn't stop there because the herdsmen fled and going into the city, they told everything, especially what happened to the two demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. Now, this was a city that probably knew about these demon-possessed men. They know that you don't pass by that way because these men afflicted by demons would come out. You didn't want to be around them. And then when these herdsmen come and say, look, there's a guy who came, and with the word, he healed these men. He restored them to wholeness. Well, of course you'd want to go see Jesus. And we might expect that they would come and they would say, wow, I'm amazed at what you have done. That is a demonstration of your authority and who you are. And we might anticipate that they would follow in faith. But what they do is this. When they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. That's one of the most terrifying stories in all the Bible. Not because it involves demons, but because we have a graphic picture of the hardness of a human heart. The hardness of a human heart who can see the identity and authority of Jesus on full display and say, I want no part of this. We don't know why they rejected Jesus. It, it might have just been... For fear. Who could this person be? I, I'm afraid of him. It might be because he represented great economic loss. They lost a whole herd of pigs. 
Whatever it is, they say that following Jesus is too costly. And they beg him to leave their region. Chapter 8 began with a man afflicted with an illness. And Jesus heals him. Chapter 8 concludes with two men afflicted by demons. And Jesus heals him. With the leprous man, we saw someone come to Jesus in desperate faith, crying out. And the townspeople respond to this healing of Jesus with fear and rejection. It was too costly for them to follow Jesus. Well, how are we supposed to respond to chapter 8? Like, what is the Christian response when we read the stories about Jesus? The first thing that we ought to do is we ought to be amazed. We ought to look at this description of what Jesus has done and say, what an amazing Savior. We ought to remark who is able to cast out demons, to heal sickness, Who is able to calm a stormy sea? It's the Son of God. He's our Savior. We ought to be amazed at the power, the authority, and the compassion that Jesus demonstrates. Secondly, this text is calling us to believe. And we should say, wow, what an amazing Savior And we should respond to this in faith. Some of you might have come this morning still considering the claims of Christ. Not wholly being committed to Him. And when you hear these stories, you're like, do you really expect me to believe that this guy calmed a sea? Do you really expect me to believe that there's demons? Do you really expect me to believe that He made people whole by just a word. And I want to say yes. And I want you to be called to believe something even crazier than that. Because ultimately what these healings are pointing us to is the final healing when Jesus undoes the curse by taking our sins upon Him, dying on a cross in our place, and raising up in victory. That is the craziest miracle in all of Scripture. And that's what God is calling you to believe today. These miracles are one step towards authenticating that message about Jesus. Many of us came this morning affirming that gospel message, saying, yes, Jesus is my Savior. And what God is calling us to this morning is to costly discipleship. He's calling us to value Christ more than anything in this world and follow Him with our whole lives. So ask the question, what is keeping you from complete devotion to Jesus? What is keeping you from following Jesus with your whole life? For some of us, it might be a pattern of sin. For some of us, it might be societal pressure. Maybe it's a relationship or some other challenge. But for some of us, 
It's the dulling effect of the pleasures of the world. It's distraction by lesser things. One pastor said it this way. He said, The greatest enemy of a hunger for God, a real desire for Jesus, is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but the endless nibbling at the table of the world. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than anything else in all the world. Like Matthew 13 says, life with him and knowing him is a treasure of inestimable worth. And in our joy, we want to forsake everything else and follow him with our whole lives. Because Jesus is Lord, follow him in faith. Let's pray. Father God, our hearts rejoice in hearing about the compassionate and powerful work of your Son. And God, I would ask that our hearts would be believing, creating us hearts that respond to this description of what He has done for us. Let us respond in faith. Let us believe. And God, I would ask that you help us to follow because Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Help us to follow in the path of costly discipleship. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.